Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. The category is, of course, Best Actress in a Leading Role, and the nominees are Katherine Hepburn for On Golden Pond, Diane Keaton for Reds, Marsha Mason for Only When I Laugh, Susan Sarandon for Atlantic City, Meryl Streep for The Friends Returns Winner. This year, for Best Actress, the winner is Katherine Hepburn. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about the 1982 Ceremony Year win for Katherine Hepburn. This is the fourth Best Actress win for her. She currently holds the record for the most amount of Best Actor or Actress wins in all of Oscar history. Uh, You have Meryl Streep, who has three. One of them is supporting Jack Nicholson. Same situation. The closest person to come up to her is, of course, Daniel Day-Lewis and... uh, uh, oh my gosh, it's Francis, Francis, McDormand. Francis McDormand. Yes, thank you, thank you. And that is a perfect jumping off point because today I am joined, I'm very excited to have this guest on our podcast. Uh, he uh, reached out to me, he's a fan, and I'm so glad that he's a fan. He is an editor and a writer uh, for Now Magazine. He is a theater, comedy, and film critic. It's Glenn Sumi. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Kyle. How are you? I am well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I love it. Yay! I'm so glad that you do, um, and I'm so glad to have you on here. You know, as we were discussing just before we jumped onto this, I find it so difficult finding guests for this podcast uh, because, like, I want to pick the right people that are, like, appropriate for the podcast, but also it's, like, a five-movie commitment, and, you know, some of these, like, the movie Reds was, like, four days long, right? Yeah, I had to break that one up. Oh, so did I. And there was an intermission and I was like, bless, I'm going to go and walk into the ocean and then return and then we'll continue this film. So just very, very quickly, 1982 Academy Awards Ceremony Year win. Best Actor went to Henry Fonda for On Golden Pond. Best Supporting Actor went to John, uh, Sir John Gilgod for Arthur. Best Supporting Actress went to Maureen Stapleton for Reds. Best Director went to Warren Beatty for Reds. And Best Picture went to Chariots of Fire. Very interesting fact mm-hmm. about the 1982 Academy Awards. Henry Fonda, um, Catherine Hepburn, and John, Sir John Gilgod were not present for the award ceremony. So that means that three of the four actors that win like the big awards were not there to accept it. Um, and I think this was very common back in the day, but nowadays we don't see that as often because people want to be there for their acceptance speech. Um, okay. So generally, whenever we sort of get into this podcast, I always like to ask my guest you know, maybe why they selected a certain year, if there was any particular reason, if it was random. But um, I know that you had given me a few options, but why did you suggest Catherine Hepburn on Golden Pond? 
I mean, as you mentioned, I write mostly about theater for Now Magazine in Toronto and theater companies, they send in their listings like of shows that are going on. And a few weeks ago, I actually got a release that Drayton Theater, which is this regional theater company in cottage country in Ontario, was doing on Golden Pond. And it made me think three things. A, I have never seen the play. And now that I've watched the movie again, I just don't know if I really want to see the play. Uh, B, why don't I have friends friends who own cottages to invite me over and see i wonder if kyle has covered on golden pond and is it best actress podcast so i looked into it and you hadn't covered it so i dropped you a line and here we are oh i love that i mean i am also of the people in ontario who needs friends with a right right Uh, I would love an invite. Um, And no, I'm glad that you picked this year. I have seen a few of these movies before. Um, There were a couple of like really delightful surprises in this list. But for me, Catherine Hepburn is one of those actresses that was like a complete legend. And I often find that the movies that she has her Oscars for are not necessarily the ones that maybe she should have won for. That's just my opinion. We'll get into it. Um, but this, uh, let's, let's just jump right into it. So, um, we're just going to talk about these movies in no particular order. It's generally the movies, uh, in the order that I watched it in. And the sure. first one that I want to talk about this one, I'm actually, uh, incredibly excited to talk about because the first time that I was told about this, uh, movie, I was understood that it was more of a supporting role and I was actually surprised. So let's talk about the movie, uh, Atlantic city with Susan Sarandon. This was Susan Sarandon's first Academy Award nomination, and Atlantic Atlantic City is one of 26 films to be nominated for all five key awards, which is director, actor, actress, uh, uh, picture, and writing, and it is one of six to not win any. Uh, This movie was originally released in Canada, hey, what's up, Uh, Germany and France in 1980, and it was not released in the U.S. until 1981. It did win uh, some Genie Awards, which uh, for anybody listening, the Genie Awards is now called the Canadian Screen Awards, is like our uh, TV film kind of, let's say, Emmy, Golden Globes, if you will. Uh, a little bit of an amalgamation back in the day. And uh, Burt Lancaster, who is the male lead of this movie, lost Best Actor to Henry Fonda due to Jane Fonda's aggressive campaign as mm. he was dying, and this was his only his last opportunity to win an Oscar. And I believe the the only other Academy Award nomination, I might be wrong about this, was in 1941 for The Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was really his his last chance. And side note, I mean, we'll get into it, but Henry Fonda was incredible in that movie, so I'm glad that he won. Mm-hmm. Um, so very quickly, uh, Atlantic City. So uh, I'm just going to give this IMDb uh, synopsis. In a corrupt city, a small-time gangster and the estranged wife of a pot dealer find themselves thrown together in an escapade of love, money, Drugs and danger. Ooh. So this is Susan Sarandon's first Academy Award nomination. Now, the reason why I'm excited to talk about this is because when I had discussed uh, this movie with a guest previously on this podcast, they had said that they were surprised that Susan Sarandon was even nominated for this because she had more of a, quote, supporting role. And watching this film, I totally disagree with that. And I think that she was very present in this. I think that Susan Sarandon maybe just thought she would get supporting. And then she was surprised that she was nominated for a lead. But after watching the movie, I don't really know why. Because she almost has as much screen time as Burt Lancaster. 
Um, now, had you seen this movie before, and what did you think about it, and what did you think about Susan Sarandon's performance? Yeah, I mean, I've seen all five of these films before, but in some cases, it's been you know like years, decades, even you know since since I've seen them. And this is one I probably watched on like VHS uh, ages ago. Um, I I think this was probably one of my favorite movies of of the five i really like the sort of i like the tone it's got this really interesting tonally interesting script uh it's got this wacky humor and it's it's a strange sort of hybrid of genres too it's it's sort of a gangster picture it's sort of this mm. offbeat comedy uh, and there's wow. a bit of counter culture in there too and it's a, it's got this great sort of central metaphor of you know this decaying city which is crumbling down i think the, one of the first images is one of the big sort of casino hotels being crumbled and this new sort of the new atlantic city is going to come back in. So I really appreciated that. Um, I liked Susan Sarandon a lot. I think this is uh, an honorable sort of nomination, but I found that it was really hard to take your eyes off of Burt Lancaster because he is just such a huge, physically and metaphorically, huge presence in this film. And when you're watching him, you bring all of your knowledge of, you know, his decades of, of film roles to this. And um, and she is really good. Uh, and she, I've just found that her role is a lot of reacting, which is fine because she's got those enormous, you know, Betty Davis eyes. There, there's no surprise why she played her in, um, in Feud. But she reacts a lot. Um, but it's not, a, it's not the most active role. But when she is required to, to say her dialogue, she, she just nails it. So, so good for her. I mean, what's so interesting about this is because I think that you as a writer, editor of a magazine and a critic, you can certainly bring in all of the academic language into this conversation. See, anybody listening to this podcast, I'm just a comedian. I am just <laughs> the I'm here for poops and giggles. It's this is such a this is such a contrast to what I'm normally used to because normally I have comedians on this podcast. I feel like you're giving me everything that like the theater people probably want from this podcast. <laughs> so thank you for offering your expertise in this moment. I mean, for me, talking about Susan Sarandon in this role, I there are so many moments that I just, I love. Like, okay, so the movie opens on mm. her putting a lot of lemons <laughs> all over her body in a window while Burt Lancaster is like creepily staring at mm -hmm. her. And then you're thinking, mm, this is problematic. But then you actually find out that like she knew that he was there mm -hmm. and she was like kind of into it. So you're like, ooh, so she kind of has like a bit yeah. of a, she enjoys like a thrill a little bit. Yeah. And what I really enjoy about whenever her, um, her, Oh God, her pregnant sister with her, I suppose, let's say ex-husband, ex even though they're still married, you know, shows up at the uh, casino. Immediately I'm hooked into the story because it's kind of like a Jerry Springer special. <laughs> but then also like it's taking place um, in like a gritty sort of environment mm -hmm. of the casino and her relationship with each one of these characters is angry but mm -hmm. also complicated and i think that susan sarandon uh and it's this is why she shone so much in dead man walking when she had won her oscar she's very good at like reacting mm -hmm. acting mm -hmm. kind of thing where somebody will show up to her and then she has you know what i mean yeah. and i think that she does that better than like most actresses um of her time and of her generation and um 
there's a lot of things that I really like about her relationship with Burt Lancaster. I'll be honest with you. Like, I know this is going to sound kind of ageist, but just the age difference, I always find kind of jarring from like 1970s, 60s, 80s movies where like, you know, the female lead will be like 20, 30. And then like the male lead will be like 60, 70. And like, you know, and I I realize that that's ageist, but like, it's just a bit jarring whenever you go back and you watch these films. But I love that Susan Sarandon was the one that kind of like, you know, saves Burt Lancaster Mm -hmm. uh, whenever they're being, I guess, not like, like mugged, you know, by those two um, gangster guys. Mm -hmm. And then she goes up to him and she's like, are you all right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love that kind of dynamic. And then his ego is bruised. Like, yeah. They're just really great relationships that she had with all her characters. I think, too, that the fact that Louis Mal, the director, who was her partner or lover at the time, was directing her, made it made sure that um, that the scenes, you know, when she's, you know, as you mentioned, that opening scene where she's you know, showing her breasts and squeezing lemons all over them. And even the seduction scene um, sort of midway or maybe two thirds of the way through, he makes sure that those those that she's in control and that they're not exploitative or cheap. Um, and I love too that that scene, you know, that scene near the end where right before they they sleep together, uh, he says, he, he sort of, he throws down that, oh, I've watched you. And she finds out and says, oh, I thought somebody was looking. And she makes the move. I think she unbuttons her shirt or something, right? So he gives her that little line and she takes it up, you know? So he doesn't mm-hmm. force himself on her, which I, I think makes it so much so much easier and um, more comfortable to watch. Even though, yeah, I think Lancaster was almost exactly twice her age in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> And a lot of people were pissed off that he did not win Best Actor oh, for it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I told this was a, a, a fantastic movie. Anybody listening to this podcast, if you have not had the opportunity to see Atlantic City, just there's so many. If you can't find it online, I can send you a link. Like it's uh, a really fantastic film and a, a delightful surprise because I was expecting Susan Sarandon to barely be in this, but she. Uh, her, her character's name is Sally, and uh, Sally was one of my favorite parts of the movie. And um, I, I, but I really enjoyed the complicated relationship that she had with her sister and her brother. And like, especially whenever she sees when she has to confirm that mm-hmm. uh, it is him, that he's the dead body, you know. And she goes into the hospital, and she just has this blank stare. And as an audience member, you can kind of interpret like, does she care? Or is it that she does care and that she's in shock? Or is she actually like, well, you know, you embarrassed me and I kind of hate you. Like there's a lot of layers to the way that you can interpret her reaction to something. Um, And also, you know, she like she delays telling her sister you know, and mm-hmm. there's just a lot of things. It's like, oh, why is she protecting her sister? Does she still love her sister? Like, or is she still angry and she like wants to prolong it and then be like, by the way, he's dead whenever maybe she does something yeah. that she's pissed up. I don't know. But I think that it was uh, very interesting the way that she had her relationship with her family and her yeah. husband. And I, I really appreciate it. Um, and her sister, Hollis McLaren, who was, um, you know, the lead, the co-lead in Outrageous with Craig Russell, uh, who's a, you know, a famous Canadian actress. She is quite the character. You know, she's this sort of hippie, uh, hippie character who's 
fully pregnant and has some of the best lines. Like at one point she says, I don't believe in gravity. She wants to take acid so that what was the line so that we can learn from the baby's wisdom. I mean, yeah. those lines are, are fantastic. But you know what? I wish there had been one more scene, maybe, maybe with Susan Sarandon and her sister talking about what life was back, what was like back in Saskatchewan or wherever wherever they're from. I, I know she suggests a lot. And I think you're right that with those, you know, with those reactions and those looks and just her hesitation in talking to her sister, we can glean sort of a lot of a lot of that. But I, I wish there were just one more scene. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really great sort of big debut because I think the year before she had done Pretty Baby with, uh, with Brooke Shields and Louis Mel and hadn't really sort of made much of a mark. And of course, she had, she had done um, she had done Rocky Horror, Rocky Picture, Horror Show. Picture Show, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I also thought it was really funny that she was like attending the Yale School of Blackjack. That was fun. <laughs> I missed that. I missed that. I, yeah, yeah. And like, then she gets like fired because it turns out that her husband has like a record, and then, oh god, you know. And like, she works like shucking oysters, yeah. and her life is depressing like it's just a very very depressing life and when, when Burt Lancaster comes in he's also extremely flawed yeah. and then they suggested that he was on like the FBI's most wanted yeah like and, it's just yeah like it's just gritty I just I loved it and the thing is yeah she's naive I mean she knows some things about life but she buys into the whole Burt Lancaster a former gangster thing meanwhile he's never really been big and just by him with this money. I mean, there's a whole plot about Burt Lancaster taking the cocaine that her ex-husband sort of stole and then and then making some money and, and being like a big shot. And so she's impressed with this guy who we know is really a nobody and ne never was. And she says, you know, teach me stuff. So she wants to learn. I think, I, you know, she's a really interesting character. I think we can relate to, to her a lot. And that final, I mean, she doesn't have big, big Oscar moments, but I think that final scene in the motel room when she's going to get pizza, um, Burt Lancaster knows that she's going to leave and says something about, you know, don't forget to ditch the car. And she says, you know, you saved my life, meaning, you know, there, yeah. she doesn't have to say more. Like, we know it. Right. So, such a good film. I, uh, I, I, I agree. The only thing that I wish that there was, was they kept cutting the cocaine with baby laxatives <laughs> and there didn't really seem to be a consequence for that. I, and I was thinking that they would get caught and then right. something would happen to them. And then that never did. That was really my only maybe critique of the film. Did you get all the Canadian references? You're probably too young. Did you recognize Al Waxman? Who was I did not. the guy in the hotel room who buys the cocaine? He was like the former king of Kensington, and Moses oh. Nimer, who founded you know City TV, uh, was one of the hoodlums who you know like killed killed her ex husband. So, oh my God! Yeah. See, Glenn, this is why we need to have uh, you on this podcast. <laughs> uh, you can just Google it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, do you have anything else that you would like to add to Susan Sarandon's performance specifically before we move on? No. Okay. 
Uh, so let us talk about, and I'm actually really excited to talk about this because this is, uh, for me, art imitating life. Uh, let's talk about Marsha Mason in Only When I Laugh. And this is very interesting. So a couple of facts about this movie. So James Coco in this movie, Jimmy, he's like sort of like the gay best friend. He was actually nominated for a Razzie while also being nominated for Best Supporting Actor uh, for the Oscar. Um, this movie was also nominated for Worst Original Song. But James Coco <laughs> became the first actor to be nominated for an Oscar and a Razzie at the same time. The only wow. other time that this happened was for Amy Irving for the movie Yentl, as well as Glenn Close for the uh, most recently oh, yeah. for a Hillbilly yeah. Elegy yeah. or Elegy or whatever it's called. And uh, this... Uh, uh, movie is based on a source play, The Gingerbread Lady, uh, but the movie uh, was really only referencing about like half of the play. And in this movie, Marsha Mason, who is the uh, nominated person, she the movie is about an alcohol. I'm just going to read this like IMDb thing very quickly. A boozy Broadway actress, Marsha Mason, comes out of a 12 week cure to face. I love the cure. It's rehab to face the problems of her best friends, as well as her needy daughter. She tries to balance the terrors of returning to work with the demands of all around her with humor and insight while staying off the booze for anybody listening to this podcast. Uh, we all know uh, Kyle Brownrigg, when he drinks, he becomes Lyle. And then I had to, I developed a really bad drinking problem and a drug problem during the pandemic. Went to therapy, quit drinking for six months. I have permanently quit drugs and got my shit together. And I know what that journey is like mm -hmm. about having to get off the sauce mm -hmm. and really learn proper social skills mm -hmm. and also to have a healthy relationship with alcohol and to uh, repair friendships that mm -hmm. you have damaged. And um, this type of story is right up my alley. And I have seen Marsha Mason in uh oh god what was it starting over what was the movie here? Uh, no. cinderella liberty did you do uh, that the here? goodbye girl, goodbye girl. Yeah, yeah yeah so starting over the goodbye girl chapter two i've seen all of these movies and if i'm being honest with you i have never really been into them um side note this has nothing to do with marcia mason's performance but i swear to god i feel like somebody needs to check on this i'm pretty sure the apartment in only when i laugh is the exact same apartment from the goodbye girl like uh -huh. i I'm like pretty sure. Like I didn't read that anywhere. I'm just saying I think it's the same. But anyway. That she rents for three hundred dollars, right? Oh my god, <laughs> I, know. I know. I love that line. Oh my god, my eyes rolled so hard when I heard that. Um so yeah, Marsha Mason, she's a struggling alcoholic Broadway actress, but she has a sense of humor. So naturally I love this. Um, what did you think about this movie and what did you think about Marsha Mason's performance? I really like this film. I, I mean, it was one of those movies that uh, was on high rotation on late night TV in the late 80s or mid to late 80s. So I remember seeing it as like a teen or, or a kid. And I remember kind of liking it, but not really not really thinking about it much. But it really does hit hit harder, I think, when you get older. And, you know, you know people with substance abuse issues. Maybe you've dealt with them yourself. I do remember thinking at the time that the James Coco character, you know, who's this openly gay character, and that is not the point of his character. He just exists in this. And he's like, you know, a good friend before the cliche of the, the gay best friend or before that became a cliche. I remember thinking that he was sort of unlike anything else on TV at the time. 
Um, but yeah, it really hit harder this time. And, um, especially since, you know, I do cover theater. So I, you know, I do interviews with people. I've been to Joe Allen, the, the, uh, the, the bar where she meets her, her ex. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a famous place. Um, and, um, you know, the rehearsals and everything, uh, and just her struggles. I mean, the final third of this film is really Marsha Mason's Oscar clip because she goes through so much. And, you know, I think that we've got a sort of, I think we have a prejudice against, um, I, I can't come up with a better term than, you know, women's pictures. These sort of domestic pictures are just, uh, you know, they're not really about anything except these flawed sort of characters. But we see her going through these struggles. Uh, she loses, uh, I mean, she, you know, she meets her ex-boyfriend's sort of new girlfriend. She finds out that uh, one of her best friends who's celebrating her 40th birthday party has just been left and her mm -hmm. other friend has just been fired from her job. So it's like this, this, this perfect storm of badness that descends on her. And she's trying to get a, get a hold of, you know, of the doctor at the facility at the, uh, the rehab clinic and she can't. And I mean, I would just watch that final third, you know, <laughs> again, no, no problem. And she, she just, she nails that, those scenes, I think. I mean, first of all, in Marsha Mason's defense, literally the day that she arrives home yeah. from rehab, <laughs> the day, her daughter's like, hey, haven't seen you in a while. I'd love to live with you permanently. Yeah. Also, here's your ex-lover named David, who literally is going to present you with a play about <laughs> the most traumatic moment of your life. Would you like to star in it? Did you just get here an hour ago? Oh, also, here's a baby for you. Like, it was just like, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, like, she is fresh off the funny farm. Yeah. She literally has gone through something very traumatic and she's it, baby steps, people, baby yeah. steps. And then people are surprised that she relapses. That, like she had a certain strength that I would respect because whenever I um, stopped drinking for six months, the biggest challenge for me, uh, because if you are an alcoholic, Oftentimes, when you try to stop, you realize that the friendships mm -hmm. that you have made in your life are often based in alcohol. Yeah. So when you try to hang out with those people sober, you suddenly realize, oh, God, what's missing? Mm -hmm. And then you start to see how not necessarily like superficial your relationship is, but it's it's very shallow. And when she's coming home and everybody's just throwing her into the deep end, you know, I, maybe I'm just like projecting my own experience onto the performance, but for me, it just felt so real mm -hmm. and everything about it and the way that she handled it, she had this sort of, you could tell she was saying yes to things, but yeah. deep down she was like, oh my God, like this is so difficult for me. And when she does relapse yeah. and then she goes to uh, Polly, uh, Christy McNichol's apartment, uh, or no, was that Joan Hackett? It was Joan Hackett, I think it, yeah. It was Joan Hackett. That's right. Sorry. When uh, when Joan Hackett, uh, when she goes to her apartment and she like relapses and then because she needs that alcohol to get through the moment because uh, uh, Joan Hackett's uh, Toby, her husband left. And so she's all making it about her. But yeah. then Marsha Mason's like, I need booze to get through this yeah. to support my friend. Those scenes are just very well researched, I yeah. suppose. So credit to the writer. And I just... It was acted so well, and I found it very triggering to watch. Those scenes are very mm -hmm. difficult for me to watch because I have been Marsha Mason yeah. in those moments multiple times, and like I'm not proud of that. Mm -hmm. So 
overall, like this story was extremely compelling. The performance for me was very familiar. It felt very realistic. Yeah. And I think that Marsha Mason carried it with a certain sort of dignity. And yeah. this is like, for me, the favorite part, a kind of sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think she was just the right choice. And I just, I oh, loved it. Just a hundred percent. I mean, the film is so good about just those psychological games that you play with yourself. I mean, when she goes to, yeah, that disastrous party, she knows she doesn't want to steal focus from, from Joan Hackett's sort of tragedy or Jimmy Coco, what's going on with him. So she sort of in the background is like, you know, swigging the champagne or whatever. And then the friends find out, but it's like, you know, you, you don't, you want to be a friend, you want to support, um, and you don't want it all to be about yourself. And I just think, she, I, I just think the film is so good about these codependent relationships, which makes, you know, the ending so, so powerful. I, I don't even know if I remember seeing that ending before, but do we, do you want to talk about it? Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. They have like 40, 30 years to watch this movie. So. <laughs> So spoiler alert for anybody, but like you had your chance. <laughs> yeah. So so Christy, so Christy McNichols' father uh, wants to has been wanting to have brunch with the three of them, just to sort of see how Marsha Mason is doing, whatever. And on her big bender night, uh, she gets into you know, she 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 boozes it up and um, and sort of leads some guy on, and he beats her up, and she has a black eye. She looks terrible. And so the next morning, which I think, you know, the brunch is supposed to be that afternoon. She just tells Chris McNichol, no, I, there's no way I can't go. She based, you know, Chris McNichol's disappointed, but she, she goes away and, and, and moves. And there's something, there's some line that, uh, that Jimmy Coco says something about, you know, you'll always have the three of us or whatever, you know, like, so you, you'll always have, you know, we'll always be your friends or whatever. And there's this great moment where Marsha Mason realizes, am I going to be, Am I going to be stuck in this, this sort of, this, you know, it, I mean, she obviously loves these people, but they might not be the best for her to get over this. And, and she really should sort of move on and become an adult. Um, and the last scene is just, just, you know, I'm just tearing up, just thinking about it. It's just, she goes to the brunch um, and with glasses and you think, oh, is she going to keep the glasses on? And then, and she, she takes them off and we don't hear what she says, but it's like, you know, she's owning up to her mistakes. It's not the worst thing. She'll, she may relapse again, but I think she's trying to move on. She's trying to be an adult about it. And it's just a very, very sort of moving, moving ending to the, to the film. I feel like somebody watching could also misinterpret that as like time has passed. I actually had to go back to make sure that uh, Christy McNichol, her daughter, Polly, was like still wearing that red plaid skirt. Cause I was like, wait, cause she covered up the bruise pretty quickly, like pretty well with the makeup. So I was like, wait a minute. And then I realized like afterward, like, yeah, like she, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was just me. I found that a bit confusing, but. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I thought that too, because I thought, yeah. So I, I had to rewatch it, but I think Christy McNichol took her, took her stuff back to her dad's apartment and then, because this was clearly in the morning, right? She woke up at what, 5.30 or whatever to make breakfast. Um, yeah. And then met at like one o'clock at brunch or whatever at, you know, Tavern on the Green. 
You know, just as a side note, I gotta say, I don't know if this is like because it was the 80s or something, but both Polly and Jimmy were way too chill about the fact that she had the shit beaten out of her. They were like, <laughs> oh, somebody's been drinking again. It was like, whoa, like, what do you mean? Like, she had a black eye and like mm-hmm. a scrape down her face and they didn't really seem to care. Like, they were like, oh, anyway, like, it just kind of was... <laughs> I didn't, I thought that was a little bit weird. Um, Also, side note, this is on like a lighter, funny note. I love in these older movies, whenever they have like a shopping montage and it's like taking place in the 80s. So like the window outfit is like a floor length (laughs) nightgown covered in ruffles and bows. And you're like, "Mm, yum, 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 yum. You know, I love, I love that. But uh, I do have to say that, um, Yeah, like there's a lot of nice like little comedy moments in this movie that I appreciate, obviously. And clearly, Marsha Mason knows how to do like the dramedy. Like she knows how to do that very, very well. Um, I think that I about an hour and four minutes into the movie, I wrote a note saying that I wish that there was more of a struggle with alcohol that I'm not seeing here. Mm. But then they really do get into it in like the the third act, which mm-hmm. I very much was waiting for. And I was happy that it eventually got there. And I think for me, the best acting that I saw in this movie was between uh, Marsha Mason and Christy McNichol, mm-hmm. uh, who played Polly, her daughter, especially when she um, had been assaulted. And then she had to talk to her daughter on the phone and ask if she could just see her another time. And mm-hmm. she's saying, oh, I'm fine. But she's doing that while holding back tears. I thought that for me, that was the, that was for me, my Oscar moment. Mm-hmm. Did you, uh, did you catch the Kevin Bacon um, uh, cameo? <laughs> no? That was, it was really yeah. intense because it was like, cause he, and then the fact that they thought that Marsha Mason <laughs> was Chrissy McNichol's sister. Yeah. I'm like, do you, are your eyes, are you blind? <laughs> but, very generous very yeah. sweet yeah. all right well is there anything else that you would like to add to marsha mason's performance before we move on i mean just that line and they could have easily sort of cut it from the film so after the big 40th birthday party the disaster she's fallen off the wagon she's in the cab coming back with james coco and she says you know give me your hand jimmy give me your hand i'm cold And it's just, wow, what a beautiful, beautiful moment. And he is almost not talking to her, but I think, you know, she she reaches out to him. um, And, you know, they've been friends probably for decades and and they'll continue to be. But, you know, she's got this thing that she has to deal with. So, so many good I think that's a very good point that you had made when we started about Jimmy. It's like the character, it wasn't just about his sexuality. It was that, like, he was more than just a one-dimensional gay best friend. And I think that that's definitely worth mentioning because that is such a trope in mm-hmm. these movies, right? And it was sort of nice to see when she did reach out her hand. He's like, oh, I'll hold my hand or whatever. And like, he wouldn't do it at first mm-hmm. and he hesitated, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, they had a, they had a, they had wonderful chemistry. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, oh God, I, I am, <laughs> I am very curious what your thoughts are on this one. Let's talk about Diane Keaton in the movie <laughs> oh Reds. Oh boy. So uh, if anybody listening has never seen the movie Reds, it is directed by Warren Beatty. I will give a preface to somebody that I might be a little biased toward this. I am not a fan of Warren Beatty. <laughs> uh, 
So just putting that one out there. So if I seem a little harsh, uh, maybe that's why. But I'm just, I never have been. I don't get it. And he kind of just drives me crazy um, for many reasons. But hey, that's a different podcast. But I will objectively be talking about Diane Keaton and her performance. Um, very quickly, uh, IMDb. So Reds is a radical American journalist becomes involved with a communist revolution in Russia and hopes to bring its spirit and idealism to the United States. So this is actually based on a real story. Warren Beatty plays Warren Beatty plays John Reed and Diane Keaton plays Louise Bryant. There are a lot of elements going on to this story. It's basically like a four-hour nap. Sorry, and uh, it is. Uh, you know, very well acted, very well written. I don't love the pacing, but mm -hmm. if you love like a historical epic and you also love like politics, like this is definitely for you. I am not really that into it, but I am just going to focus specifically on Diane mm -hmm. Keaton's performance. Before we do, I have a couple of facts about this movie. So Maureen Stapleton, who won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, the only actress to show up for her award that night, uh, says that Warren Beatty would reshoot scenes up to 80 times and famously said, quote, are you out of your fucking mind and earned a round of applause from the cast and crew. Warren Beatty took time to explain the rights of work, the, the rights of the working man to the film extras in Spain while they were filming in Spain. And the extras took the message to heart and refused to return to work, saying that they felt exploited. And Beatty, wow. understanding the irony of this situation, had to increase their wages, which wow. I think is hilarious. Wow. Uh, Warren Beatty becomes the third person nominated for three Oscars actor, director, screenplay, while also being nominated for Best Picture. The other two were Woody Allen for Annie Hall and Orson Welles for Citizen Kane. The uh, This is the last Hollywood, pic this is one of the last Hollywood pictures to have an intermission uh, in the film, but the last one was Hamlet in 1996, which was actually over four hours in length. Uh, 65 people worked on the film's editing and post-production, which took almost six months. And he and Diane, uh, Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton's romantic relationship became extremely strained by this film. Another thing that I read about this, I don't have this written down, but I do know that Gene Hackman plays a very small part in this movie. And he only agreed to do so because he was friends with Warren Beatty, but he knew about how the, the repetitive shoots that he does that whenever uh, he was asked by Warren Beatty to be in another one of his films, he actually just straight up was like, I love you, Warren, but no, I actually cannot do your pictures because I cannot handle the 100 takes that you do. Even wow. Jack Nicholson snapped on him being like, oh my God, just tell me what you fucking want me to do. <laughs> and you know what? Fair enough. Like when you're getting to the 30, 40 rep rep repetitive scene mark, like I get it. So. That being said, let us focus on <laughs> Diane Keaton. Um, I uh, let us. One thing that I will say before I hand it over to you about Diane Keaton, I've never seen this side of Diane Keaton before, being like in a historical epic. Mm -hmm. I'm used to her being like a quirky, comedic type of character that'll have like a dramatic note, like in the movie The Family Stone, for example. Mm -hmm. But in this, it really seems sort of like a prestige drama type of tone and role. And I got to say that Diane Keaton, I was very impressed by her. And I think she carried this picture very well. And I think that she was the right choice for this. But mm -hmm. now I'm going to hand this over to you. 
what did you think about the movie? What did you think about Diane? Um, yeah, I mean, this was, I think, my third or fourth time watching it. And I was fortunate enough to see it like at a rep cinema on a big screen at one point, which I okay. think is important for something this size and scale and length, you know, because an, an intermission means something at the theater, whereas when you're streaming it, an intermission could be any time you, you want it to be. Um, but I'd never really realized until, I mean, you know, doing this, like, doing this podcast was such an interesting experiment because we're watching these films uh, focused on one lead female performance. And I had never really realized until this time that so much of the film is about Louise Bryant, is about Diane Keaton's character finding her voice as an artist and as a woman. And so much of the, the point of view is hers, you know? She'll be watching, you know, all these these political demonstrators or whatever, he'll cut to her, he'll give her a nice, big, juicy uh, close-up. And I don't think I really... I don't think that was a big takeaway before. I mean, I mean, as always, I am a big sucker for a sort of uh, a, a, a epic love story. You know, something's played out against a backdrop of world events, even though I don't think that the politics are are really clearly sort of uh, delineated in this film. But I mean, you know, that final train scene where she has basically she's basically crossed across Finland she's shipped yeah. away on board you know she's done nobody knows where she's gone uh, she ends she 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 ends up in Finland he has been he's left he's left the prison or whatever has gone back to Russia so she goes there and they have this reunion scene which is so moving is so well filmed and she is such a good film actor you see in her eyes she doesn't have to say a word you see her as these people come out of a train you know, Warren Beatty's not there. Warren Beatty's not there. She sees a corpse on a stretcher. You see her terror there and thinking, where is he? She turns around. We can sort of see him in, in the background. And she goes, she doesn't have to say a thing. She hugs him. And, you know, that I think that is why we see movies on a, on a big screen. It's, it's one of the most affecting sort of emotional moments, I think, in, in films in the 80s. So um, I, I, I do agree that, you know, she doesn't do period that often. She did, I think, Mrs. Sawful, um, which was a, a period piece. But there is something about her. I don't know if it's, you know, growing up in California. She has such contemporary cadences in the way she talks. She doesn't do much with her voice. She's not, she hardly ever does accents. So unlike somebody like a Meryl Streep, who, you know, is a chameleon who can disappear into roles, her personality is so strong all the time. But I do think that, you know, in the best moments in this film, you know, she does convince you that she is in this era. I mean, man, she looks amazing in the period fashions too, and all the different, all the different frocks and the hats and the ha the hairstyles. But I don't know. I, w I was impressed and she totally won me over by the end, just trekking, you know, uh, cross-country skiing across from Yes, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that because I was, <laughs> I was impressive. And then yeah. she went all the way there and then he wasn't there. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad that you brought that up about the contemporary thing with her voice, because I actually felt that Warren Beatty and mm -hmm. Diane Keaton were both very guilty of that. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily like on Warren Beatty as the director, mm -hmm. but it felt like a very the first note that I made about the movie was, quote, she doesn't seem like she's from 1915. No. She seems too much like a modern 80s standard. Yeah. And I feel like they're like, we need somebody quirky ahead of their time, sexually confident. Mm -hmm. mm, Annie Hall, let's get her in yeah. here. And then it 
and I, I understand like why they cast her and also because of the fact that she was with Warren Beatty, mm-hmm. not to take anything away from her extraordinary talents, but I am saying that obviously that does help. Uh, but I felt that when I was watching this movie, I was very aware that I was watching Diane Keaton and Warren Beatty. I did not believe for a moment that it was 1915 until Maureen Stapleton and Jack Nicholson showed up and kind of grounded it for me in terms of the fact that it was supposed to be taking place, you know, in the early 20th century. Absolutely. Um, I also thought it was very effective, but also a little comical whenever they kept intercutting the interview with like the old lady from Titanic (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because they were like telling the actual account of the historical events and like what it was like. And I love, remember those two, like, it was like, do you know those like two like Muppets that are the theater critics that are always up up on the balcony? But this time it was like two old biddies and they were like, well, at the time she was very, very sexually promiscuous. (laughs) Like it was just the way that they were kind of communicating for me was was comedy. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that aspect of it. Obviously, it was supposed to be serious, but it 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 was kind of funny. Um, But overall, I have to say I was very impressed with Diane Keaton in yeah. this picture. And if I'm being honest with you, no disrespect at all to Diane Keaton. I did not know that she had that in her. Mm-hmm. I think that there were so, I think for me, the most heartbreaking moment is at the end when um, she drops the cup yeah. and then the little boy picks it up and then she realizes that, oh shit, like yeah. he's he's dead. And just the look on her face mm-hmm. and the way that she handles that scene and the way that she handles that moment, it was so real mm-hmm. and definitely made me emotional. Yeah. And that's a credit because, frankly, I was rooting for Warren Beatty to die. I was like, <laughs> I was like, this needs to end. I do not care for him. I do not find him to be a sympathetic character. Frankly, I find him to be very selfish. Um, yeah. And I just think that if she can make me feel very empathetic toward the sympathy, toward this character that i just have borderline resentment for i think that that's a a credit to her performance and uh very like a a plus diane keaton a plus i mean talking about all those takes that he did if if you've ever well uh, on youtube there's a clip of diane keaton i think it's at the american film institute tribute to warren Beatty, or maybe it's all about reds and she comes on and you have to read between the lines because she's saying these really nice things about uh about her work in the film and 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 Warren's direction, but you can read that she had a hell of a time doing this. <laughs> and rumors are she just after he said cut at the end of of the the shooting, she got in a car and she left and she didn't look back. And somebody <laughs> somebody was saying too that you know um, on the big um, one of the latest DVD releases, everybody uh, came back and talked on the commentary track except for her. So you gotta wonder. I mean, he did get this performance out of her out of all of them but you know at what cost so well that's the thing i mean um i think the story was very well paced i guess if you do like a hundred takes like i expect (laughs) the fucking performance to be incredible because you have options and i also really enjoy the way how i just like seeing the full growth of her of, of louise bryant because she maybe got a little ahead of herself in terms of her writing abilities. Mm-hmm. And she'd say, I want to be taken seriously. So, you know, don't hold back with your criticism. And then he would actually fully say like what he thought. And then she'd yeah. get really defensive. Exactly. It wasn't until like they made it to Russia that yeah. she would 
start listening to him and yeah. handle the criticism well. And I love that you see that that sort of growth um, in her. And again, I know that I mentioned this before, but it was for me just a different side of Diane Keaton mm-hmm. that like I'm not used to seeing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just really, really, really awesome work from Diane Keaton. Yeah. And it's there, in the, it, you know, there are these two short lines that she has, two lines of dialogue. So yeah, in the Russia sequence after that, you know, really the, the big scene right before the, uh, or maybe it's right before the the intermission um, where they're singing the International and everything. It's a very rousing sort of old fashioned kind of sequence. And she says to Warren Beatty, she says, you know, Jack, thanks for, thanks for bringing me here. He had to convince her to come, to write about important things because she wanted to write about these sort of trivial matters and so he helped her in a way find her voice and then there's that other line of dialogue near the end where she's talking to um um, maureen stapleton who who had sort of written her off as sort of lightweight and she thought that louise had just left jack because you know she didn't want to be caught up in in uh, the sort of political situation in America. And she finds out that Louise, you know, came all the way to to Russia for her man. And Louise said um, something like, you know, I underrated you or something. I, you know, I didn't expect this from you. And then Louise says, you know, neither did I. And that's, you know, really sharp sort of writing um, among the tens of thousands of hours or whatever of what he yeah. of what he shot. But, you know, it's little moments like that that I think help get me through the three and a half, four hours of the film. I think I read somewhere that the, there was so much film that they had to ship it from England and the cargo ship weighed two tons. Oh, my God. Like, wow. it was just an insane amount of film. Yeah. Um, I also, but I also think that uh, it, it's nice whenever you see Diane Keaton's character, you know, Louise being very, very clingy and yeah. the way that she acts out a lot whenever she's almost has like these these tantrums i i feel like for me that was kind of like the best moments from louise was when she was kind of being a bit of a hypocrite because you know she had that relationship mm-hmm. uh with jack nicholson mm-hmm. and then you know like uh john uh, jack uh, or warren Beatty's character jack like finds out about it but then he kind of mentions too that like he's been with other women mm-hmm. but she flies off the handle oh, and then she's packing her bags and then she leaves and she's never coming back again but it's just kind of interesting to see just like how wrong she is but you're still on her side for mm-hmm. some reason <laughs> like mm-hmm. you just are like also like you're like yeah girl like i get it even though you are kind of a hypocrite because you did the exact same thing but absolutely um yeah she just she just plays it in a really fun quirky way and i guess maybe that's diane keaton's repertoire and I, also, good at it. I also wonder because you know warren Beatty has such a reputation of being you know this lothario of sleeping with you know half of you know female hollywood um, yeah. uh and they this was the end of the relationship whether there was some sort of truth to that so uh yeah i didn't quite buy him as john or jack reed or whatever but yeah. i think mm-hmm. uh as a film it's you know it's totally watchable if you have four hours <laughs> Uh, okay, fantastic performance in Diane Keaton. Do you have anything yeah. else that you'd like to add before we move no, on? No, I'm good. Okay, let us talk about... Ooh, I'm excited to talk about this one. Let us talk about Meryl Streep in The French Lieutenant's Woman. So this was Meryl Streep's 
first Mm -hmm. Best Actress nomination. She had previously been nominated for The Deer Hunter and for Kramer vs. Kramer. She had won the Best Supporting Actress for Kramer vs. Kramer, but this was her first lead actress nomination. I don't know how many she has. I think it was like 21 or 22 Mm -hmm. uh, nominations, something like that, something crazy. And um, Meryl actually considers this nomination of all of her nominations to be one of her weaker performances. Um, And so this... Uh, movie is based off of a novel from 1969 or 1968, but the novel does not feature the subplot of the actors playing the parts in the modern day movie. And uh, Meryl did daily lessons with the voice with a voice coach to develop the English mm. accent, and it was called Victorian vocal training. My only thing that I don't really like, I'm pretty sure that Meryl would be the expert on this, not me, but I know that in British. Uh, the way that you greet people is if you're speaking to the queen, you say ma'am as in ham, not ma'am as in mom. And I remember she kept being like, yes, mom, absolutely mom. It was this like really intense, deep mom. But I mean, if she was coached that way and that's how it was supposed to sound, then I suppose that's how it was supposed to sound. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, going by those, those the, uh, the Charles Dickens sort of adaptations and often they will say a sort of M-U-M. So it's not like our mom but it's sort of mum, M-U-M. Mom. So it's like, yeah, mom. this is, she's a superior person. She has, in, in the hierarchy of the household or whatever. So yeah, that didn't bug me that much, but yeah. Other than that, I mean, you know, it's Meryl Streep. Like she absolutely nails it. Um, this I've seen this movie before. Frankly, I wish there was a little bit more Meryl Streep. Very quickly though, um, the French Lieutenant's Woman, it's like they're making a movie about a, Basically, she calls herself the French lieutenant's whore. And what it is is that, like, she is of ill repute because, you know, she had sex with a man before marriage. Gasp. And she waits for him every day because I'm assuming she's like a masochist wearing this, like, spooky, you know, witch from Macbeth robe <laughs> on the water, staring out into the sea longingly. And then, uh, you know, Jeremy Irons finds her and he, he becomes infatuated with her. And then they have this forbidden romance because he's already promised to another woman and um, wackiness ensues. And then there's also this other storyline where the actual actors who play them, uh, their names are Anna and Mike, uh, Jeremy Irons and Meryl Streep, they're having an affair in real life and they are, I don't know if Meryl Streep is married, but she has some sort of a partner boyfriend. And then Jeremy Irons's actor character yeah, is married uh, and has kids. So there's sort of that. And then the movie ends, again, spoiler alert, 40 year spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> is that uh, in the like, French back in the day or in the English countryside back in the day story, they do end up together. Um, and then in the modern actor storyline, they don't end up together. So it's kind of interesting for a movie to have that kind of plot. And obviously this gets to demonstrate Meryl Streep's range. You have, I mean, that fucking wig, let me tell you that big orange mm-hmm. gigantic frizzy mess on her hair which by the way in the 80s was probably so fucking hot right like that was <laughs> it looks like her hair exploded and everyone was like yes like i it's the 80s i love having a lion's mane on my head let's she, get married and remember these photos for the rest of our lives she kind of looks um, like the girl from you know that pixar film brave do you remember yes. grown up you know with the black oh, cape and everything <laughs> A hundred percent. But in this movie, she's straight. And that girl in Brave is for sure. Oh, totally. Yeah. For sure. Queer. For sure. For sure. 
Um, so I've seen this movie before. I always love Mia Merrill performance. She obs- she uh, absolutely nails the accent. And I just really, I think also too, I think my favorite character though in the movie, do you remember when she, cause like her keeper dies. So then she has to mm. move in with that old vampire lady. This is Pitney. <laughs> and, yes. <laughs> and she was so oh conservative God. and so strict. I could watch an hour of that woman. Oh my God. It was totally. incredible. And all of her like conservative sensibility it was just she was so offended by everything i didn't really have much to say about this movie or performance i actually watched it i enjoyed it my only criticism too much jeremy irons not enough meryl (laughs) streep for me um this was jeremy irons first real theatrical starring role so maybe they just really wanted him uh to be the feature and also meryl streep this was her starring role so maybe they were like oh like men sell more tickets i don't know but you know i just wish i saw more of meryl but this is some fantastic acting. So what did you think about this movie? And what did you think about Meryl? I, uh, yeah, I mean, I saw the interview she did for, um, or she did on the Graham Norton show where he asks her for her least favorite roles or something. And she, at first she doesn't admit that it's this. And then she admits that it's this. Um, <laughs> and I can sort of see why. I mean, I think I think she needed better direction. I think you, I think Bill Antonio on this podcast before said that something about Meryl Streep about how she knows exactly the film that she's in. And so she knows how to play it. Um, And I think in this case, I don't think she did. I think she was sort of flummoxed at one point. And there's, you know, there are a couple of long five or six uh, minute monologues that she has. And I would play, I played a couple of them back and I just don't think... I think that she she could have. I think she needed Warren Beatty. I think she needed to do it again <laughs> and again. Um, but that said, I mean, she's got you know when people talk about Meryl Streep being all about technique and precision, I think they're thinking of roles like this where you know she, the technique is just down. You can see her intelligence, but I just really don't feel anything. And and she's supposed to be such a mysterious character, and I don't quite get that. I think some other women who are other actors. Who were up for this i think people talked about vanessa redgrave maybe playing this and i think she would have been i think she would have brought the mystery i think we would have wondered what was really going on and if you think you know i just thought this this morning if you compare it to you know her you know the magnificent sophie which was a year or two later this again that that again is a woman who's got a past who's got a mystery and is sort of presenting this other sort of persona but in that case you know it's deserved we we know we know that she's holding back something with this i don't quite i don't quite believe it i think my favorite scene in the whole film is the one it's about 20 or 30 minutes in where Mike and Anna, who are the contemporary actors, are rehearsing a scene and what looks like a greenhouse or something, some sort of garden. And they're yeah. rehearsing this scene. And then what uh, Carl Rice does is he cuts to he cuts to the, the, the scene in the film, which is just brilliant. But they're rehearsing it. And at first, Meryl or Anna is sort of playing along and joking and she can't quite, quite get into it. And then she takes control and she 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 says i see you or something and all she does she just turns it on and you can yeah. see in jeremy irons's eyes right then oh my god you are you are sarah woodruff at this moment and then they go on and then they they it's integrated into the the scene in the the so-called victorian film and i just i wanted more scenes like that i wouldn't have even minded if there were scenes in the victorian era the movie within a the movie within a movie 
and maybe the director yelled cut or something and they had to do something again. I just don't think they use this whole technique or meta sort of commentary. I, I don't think they use that sort of well enough. Um, but again, you know, impeccable. She looked fantastic. I mean, with her pale skin and the red hair, I thought that worked really well. Um, and I think that one of the big themes too, obviously, was to contrast, you know, women's lives in the Victorian era versus, you know, in the 80s or whenever they were they were making this. And, you know, she was like an outcast mm-hmm. for seeming to have an affair, even though, spoiler alert, she didn't have this affair with the with the lieutenant, whereas the modern day Anna can have this affair, whether she's doing that to get a better performance too from Jeremy Irons, we really don't know. You know, we don't really know much about this Anna, but, uh, you know, she doesn't really suffer any repercussions other than the fact that her lover, David, might find out or that, uh, you know, Penelope Wilton, who's Jeremy, Jeremy Irons' wife, might find out. I mean, she totally, she totally knows in that scene, but, you know, so it sort of shows the the limited the limited options available to women in the Victorian era. I mean, one of the most devastating um, parts of the film, and it's in the book as well, because uh, in the book, what John Fowles does is he includes these footnotes. So you're reading this novel, which is like a Thomas Hardy book or novel or something. And then, and then in the bottom, he'll have a footnote and he'll tell you about statistics of, you know, of the number of brothels, for instance, in London or the number of women who be- had to become prostitutes after they lost employment or whatever. And so you'd be, you'd be reading this novel and then you'd have this sort of, you know, commentary. That was one of the most devastating facts. Something like one, every, one in every 60 houses in London was a brothel. Um, you know, there just weren't options open to women um, uh, back then. Um, so, mm-hmm. so that was devastating. I mean, a lot of what you said is very true. That's very, very interesting that you wrote the rehearsal scene where she falls, because I literally wrote, quote, always remember rehearsal scene where she falls. I don't know why that scene always Mm -hmm. impresses me. I think it's because you see her turn it on and then you see like, oh, shit, like it's almost kind of freaky when she does it. And I think that that is always a very impressive scene to me. I do agree with you. I don't I don't know if the the going like into the past and then going into the future or whatever. I don't know if that was as effective as they were intending it mm-hmm. to be. And I guess that you're right now that you've kind of said that. I don't really think I cared um, whenever Anna, her like mm-hmm. the actor in the future, when she chose to walk away from the affair, I was like, well, yeah, like <laughs> we weren't really that invested in it to begin with. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and so I think that you're right. There were definitely elements that weren't working but like you're saying that's probably like on the director because i think meryl was doing the best that she could with it Mm -hmm. this has nothing to do with any of the acting at all this is just something that really bothered me from like the makeup department for the love of god she was supposed to be homeless but she looked like she was always coming from a free makeover at the shoppers drug mart makeup (laughs) counter too much rouge meryl too much it was this intense red lip with so much rouge i was like girl you're supposed to be homeless you look like you just had a supermarket makeover. Like it is insane to me. That has nothing to do with Meryl, but that was just a one thing that really bothered mm-hmm. me. Um, but you know, she, she nails the accent, she nails the mannerisms. And I think that you're right. I just didn't really care that much about either of the characters. And I think there was way too much about Jeremy Irons, but you know, it's Meryl Streep. She did a good job. And I maybe t- kind of agree with her that it's like maybe one of her less, um, 
captivating roles, but you know, still really good. And I think anybody that can make that ridiculous hair work, <laughs> A plus. <laughs> Um, okay, just for time's sake, though, I do think that we have to move on Absolutely. to our winner. Okay. So let us talk about <laughs> let us talk about Catherine Hepburn in On mm. Golden Pond. So a couple of facts about this movie. So Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn, believe it or not, never worked together or even met, even though they had been in the industry together since the 1930s. Um, Catherine Hepburn insisted on diving into the water herself without a wetsuit mm. because she used to do polar bear dips and take cold showers. And I did know about her because she lives in Connecticut and that's what she does. Uh, this is the first time that a parent and a child received Oscar nominations for the same film. Mm. Uh, obviously Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda. And the second time was Laura Dern and Diane Ladd mm. for The Rambling Rose. Mm. Catherine Hepburn has the largest gap of any actor between her first and second acting Oscar, which is 48 years between 1933's Morning Glory wow. and uh, uh, On Golden Pond. And this is the only movie that won both acting major categories, but neither of the actors were present at the ceremony to receive the award, as I had previously mentioned. Mm -hmm. So On Golden Pond, and I think that this was obviously a different time in history, was the second grossest uh not grossest the highest second highest grossing movie of 1981 and this movie is a very it's like a very family driven uh drama and dynamic very very quickly norman henry fonda is a curmudgeon with an estranged relationship with uh with his daughter chelsea jane fonda um, at Golden Pond, he and his wife, Catherine Hepburn, nevertheless agree to care for Billy. I don't know who that is, but just some random kid that isn't even Henry F or Jane Fonda's kid. She, they just ditch him there. Uh, the son of Chelsea's new boyfriend and a most unexpected relationship blooms. So really in the movie, Norman is just a grouchy, grouchy old cunt. And that's fine because I loved it. And I think I loved every wow. moment of him being a grouch because he was so unlikable. Yeah. And I think that that's very tricky to do for a lead role um, in a movie. But also during this time, like my grandfather was kind of like that mm -hmm. too. So it seems very familiar to me during the, you know, like boomers and their parents, a lot of them had very estranged relationships and they didn't get along very well. And um, I, just specifically talking about Catherine Hepburn, you know, in this movie, she plays Ethel, uh, the wife, and she is the mother and the wife that literally is the glue that holds this extremely dysfunctional family together. And she is in complete denial of everything going on, but she seems to find like the positive mm. silver lining in absolutely everything. And she understands that people are just going through things and they're just in reaction of their own experiences or trauma or whatever. And I'll be honest with you. I found that to get a little repetitive where she would just kind of come in and be like the amazing mom or the amazing wife. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't a ton of conflict with her and other characters. And I think that that's why people loved it so much because she's kind of like the fantasy grandma or the mm -hmm. fantasy wife or the fantasy mother or something like that. And she plays it super, super well. And she also kind of has it in this like sort of scrappy, like onward and upward kind of attitude but that's just kind of the magic that Catherine Hepburn brings because she is that person. Um, 
Catherine Hepburn is like how I learned to do an old lady voice, you know, <laughs> just that like, no, man, it's me, you old fool, oodles and oodles of strawberries, <laughs> like just that, I don't know what voice that is, but I'm obsessed with it. And, and I'm so glad that she never even tried <laughs> to change it or take it down. Um, isn't this fun? <laughs> you know, just diffusing situations in the only way that Ethel can. Um, I... I love my favorite line was when Norman was like, oh, there was a bear that came around here and ate an old lesbian. They're like, what? Like it was just there was nice little comedy moments, nice little tender family moments. Um, I think I've seen this movie before. I hated it. But this time around, I actually um, I understood it better and um, I understood the family dynamic better. And I also had like maybe a little bit more of an emotional investment to the storyline. And yeah. Liked it a lot. So um, what did you think about this movie? What did you think about Catherine Hepburn? I mean, this time around, because it's probably the third time I've watched this, it just felt remarkably Hallmark movie to me. Okay. It just felt like a Christmas special or something about, you know, an estranged family finally coming together uh, over the past. Um, I and I was really disappointed with with her role in particular. I think she could do this role in her sleep. I think that Jane mm. Fonda has the more interesting female part because she's got mm -hmm. some conflict and some history with her dad. Because basically, as you were saying, uh, Catherine Hepburn is the glue. She she acts as a go between between everyone and you know her crusty and crotchety old husband. And in many ways, it's a thankless role. Every other line that she says seems to be about those fucking loons <laughs> These, yeah you know the, the, loon, the loons are welcoming us here the, the loons are saying goodbye it's just like but that said i gotta say that in the last 20 minutes she gets to do a lot she gets to slap jane fonda uh with a fantastic line you know something about that old son of a bitch happens to me my husband um, yep. And she gets to be scared and concerned, you know, when when Norman has his sort of heart attack scare. And I think it's her best scene. She's waiting for the operator. And we know from that first scene that, you know, this operator um, isn't the most reliable person. And she obviously doesn't want him to die. And she really, really sells it. But I just don't know if that is really worth an Oscar. And um, uh -huh. I'm just wondering if this is uh, one of those sort of Oscars so white and so old demographics of the time. And, and maybe the, um, the Oscar voters figured that they had to give her the award because obviously they were going to give it to Henry Fonda and they wanted like a, a matching set or something. So yeah, right. I, was, I was disappointed with this. I think that any sort of senior soap opera actress could do that, you know, do that big scene at the end when, when you know, she thinks her husband is dying. But I don't know. I mean, she was she was great. She always is. She's never in a bad movie. Um, but I was disappointed. I mean, I know what you're saying. I've always found that with um, Catherine Hepburn, she is just the definition of right place, right time. <laughs> and it's one of those things where she's one of those actors that is often rewarded for the wrong project mm -hmm. because they're like, well, she has been around since like the 1930s. Like she has yeah. paid her due. She has earned it. She has an insane career. And she was the go-to actress. If there was like a more mature woman in the story, they're like, let's call Catherine Hepburn. And, you know, good for her. But I find that every single time that like she wins an Oscar and, you know, I've, I've, we did um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and I've, I've done this. I've also seen The Lion in Winter, but that's another, I haven't done that episode yet. We'll, we'll get there. But the point is, is like, 
generally speaking, I never quite understand why she was selected. And then like you're saying, there is that sort of old school um, members of the Academy that are voting for her because they get like her technique and the way that she's approaching the work. Whereas somebody in like a more modern generation might kind of be like, oh, maybe like, I don't know, like Marsha Mason or like Meryl Streep or, you know, uh, Diane Keaton. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But like, you're right. Maybe it was like they wanted matching Oscars or something <laughs> like that. I don't know if there was necessarily like a big Oscar moment. I think for me, the scene that genuinely brought me to tears was whenever um, he's having that angina because yeah. it wasn't a heart attack. Mm. And she thinks for the first time that he's actually going to die and the tears and the operator is not answering. And the yeah. way that just felt so real to me, I definitely teared up in that scene. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting that he didn't die i thought that would be the climax of the film uh but whatever and um overall katherine hepburn was probably the most um enjoyable likable character you could even borderline say like supporting character mm -hmm. if you like you could kind of argue that as well mm -hmm. um but she like you're saying could do this in her sleep mm -hmm. and I just wrote down like all of her little isms. I always think she's super cute. I love the way that she, she, she just, she played the character, but I just don't really think there was enough conflict for me. Um, yeah. Uh, or like this big arc that she had, she was just consistently always the nice guy mm -hmm. and would always just kind of reassure people that everything was going to be okay. And, and that's fine, but it just got a bit repetitive. I think the reason we knew that Henry Fonda wasn't going to die was because of that symbolic fish. Remember the old fish, Walter? That they yeah. finally catch him and then they, they throw him back into the, the ocean or sea or whatever. So, with the, oh, so Henry yeah. Fonda, and, same thing. <laughs> and they call the, 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 the rocky area Purgatory Cove. Right? Like, it's symbolic, you're right. right. You're right. <laughs> Class, pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, I think, uh, is there anything else that you would like to add to her performance specifically before we select our winner? No, but um, one thing, I looked at the other performances of that year, and one, I think Kathleen Turner for Body Heat was sort of looked over, and I think that's a performance and a role that has sort of grown in stature since it came out, and that was like her first big film, too, so I really wouldn't have minded if she had got a nomination. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've, uh, yeah, Kathleen Turner and I, we're not in the best of terms. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so um, Glenn Steamy, you are my guest, so please do the honor of, of letting me know who you think that the Oscar should have gone to. I think the Oscar should have gone to... Marsha Mason for Only When I Laugh. <laughs> Yay. Uh, okay, why? In my opinion, I think it's the performance with the biggest heart and the most soul. I don't think it's the best film of the five, but I really think she should have been recognized. I mean, she had a great period in what the late, the mid to late 70s and then to the early 80s here. I think that if she had won, she would have been offered a whole lot more roles in the, in the 80s and 90s because once she divorced Neil Simon, who wrote three of her Best Actress nominated parts, the roles just didn't come. And I think she's she's really underrated. I've sort of been going down a Marsha Mason rabbit hole over the past couple of days. And I just think she nailed this. And I think it captures women, uh, you know, albeit 
upper middle class white women or who live in you know in a big city i think she she captured that sort of experience really well at this particular time and um i think she should have an oscar on her mantle okay i love that thank you okay so i think that the oscar should have gone to Marsha Mason's ah! for Only When I Love. Yay! Yes. It was, I really, wow. I really do think that you made really good points about Meryl Streep because my go-to is always mm. generally Meryl. But in that particular case, I just didn't really, uh, I didn't feel invested in either of the characters. Mm. And then the ending, I just didn't really care about. Yeah. Um, but I, of course, always love like a good, solid British accent and everything like that. Also, uh, Diane Keaton was like amazing, but for the love of God, like the movie was just, a, <laughs> it was a chore. But Marsha Mason, for me, it was um, the most captivating. Yeah. It, I mean, as a person, again, who does struggle with drug and alcohol addiction, um, yeah. you know, for me, it, it resonated with me. And I think that the scenes that she had uh, with her daughter in the movie, Christy Manickel, who played Polly, mm -hmm. I think that they were some of the best in this group yeah. because it was an extremely complicated relationship. I do still think it was really rude of her family to like just dump all of this on her the day <laughs> she gets back from rehab. But I just think that the way that Marsha Mason um, carries the character's mm -hmm. struggle um, with uh, a, a really wonderful dignity, but also with a sense of humor, yeah. always it, it's, it checks all of my boxes. And I also agree with you that she, I think this is her fourth Oscar nomination. I believe that she should have an Oscar statue on her mantle. And so for me, it was Marsha Mason. All right. Well, uh, Glenn, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast and offering your insight. I think that you are probably uh, one of the most well-spoken people that I've had on here. Most of the people that I have are stand-up comedians and they're coming in from their parents' basement. So that is very wonderful. <laughs> Thanks for having uh, me. Where can people find you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Glenn Sumi and on Instagram, uh, although I got hacked, so my account isn't really active, I'm going to try to restart it. It's uh, Go Ahead Sumi. Oh, okay. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being a guest and we'll definitely have to have you back again. Uh, thanks, Kyle. Bye. Bye.